Welcome back, B2B enthusiasts, to another episode of Lee to B, the sassiest podcast for B2B, where I'm your host, Lee Moskowitz, and today we have an award-winning marketer, an all-around amazing person. Karina Owens is a dynamic force in the world of account-based marketing and personal branding. With a knack for scaling and building enterprise function, she's transformed organizations like Gong, and now serves as the chief evangelist at Purple Quark. Get ready for some fun talk about marketing, virtual events, ABM, and of course, we'll be spilling the tea on this episode of Lee to Be. Hey there. Woo. Hey, Lee. I'm so excited to be here with you. Yes, it's so good to be on one-to-one with you because I've attended some virtual events with you. We've talked online all the time. But yeah, this is like our first one-on-one call. I know. People are getting like an inside look into what our uh, one-to-one relationship would be like. <laughs> mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So I love to go right into things. So chief evangelist, when I hear evangelist, I think of the people wailing in churches and trying to take away my rights. I know. Uh, so, so can you explain for our listeners what a chief evangelist is in terms of B2B? Yes, and I I think about that all the time, Lee, and I just cringe that that's like a part of my job title now. So I'm hoping to change that. But what I would say is that there's basically two ways to look at what a chief evangelist would be doing for a brand. So I work internally for this organization, and there's many chief evangelists that you'll see that are evangelizing the brand as like a third party, like an influencer. Uh, So I am full-time here at Purple Cork, and essentially what I'm here to do is to spread awareness about who Purple Cork is. And a lot of what I've done here is work side-by-side with our founder, Kelly Robb, on positioning. So what does it mean to be Purple Cork for our customers? Um, Pricing and packaging, how are we going to scale the organization going forward? Um, But really being like the, the, the person, the brand for Purple Cork and evangelizing how we are helping marketers scale their events and really creating memorable and meaningful moments in a unique way via virtual events. So how does a chief evangelist differ from chief marketing officer, chief anything else? That's such a good question. What I would say is that I really got interested in this role and the idea of it probably about two years ago and then really thought of it as like an actual career path when my former CMO at Gong actually transitioned to be a CMO to a chief evangelist. And without giving away like too much internal chatter, I've really seen the CMO role, the chief marketing officer role kind of become very much a administrative profession. So what I mean is like they're bogged down in spreadsheets, they're bogged down in the data. So much of that connection to the customer, the voice of the customer, the creative ideas, like that gets lost because you're beholden to your stakeholders who are typically the board members and the CEO. And not that that wouldn't be the case for a chief evangelist, but it would just be a bit different. So what I saw is like the passion, the, the, the spark for a while of marketing in the first place was just getting so diluted with this path to being a chief marketing officer because of what their mm-hmm. core responsibilities end up being. And so I would really encourage a lot of marketers who are not wanting to like, you know, just be the status quo of like, this is the only path upward for marketers is to go the path to chief marketing officer to expand um, and really focus on like what interests them most in the the field of marketing. And I definitely think there's a role for chief evangelism to actually spread far and wide within B2B. Yeah, to me, and, and let me know if I'm wrong, kind of sounds like a CMO plus a VP of success 
plus maybe like retention specialist too. Is that is that kind of totally. right or no? Yeah, you're spot on. Like, and that's why it's really okay. hard for me to like just say what I do because it just it completely covers the entire customer journey experience. So you're spot on there. So like from acquisition to upsell to retention, I'm involved in all of that very strategically um, in a way that a chief marketing officer would be pretty removed from that, right? Um, so much of what they're going to be focused on is just net new pipeline. Um, and yeah, so I get really excited by this because it means that I'm constantly learning and I'm constantly really involved in what does the customer journey look like for our customers? Yeah, spot on. So when do when do I bring on a, a chief evangelist and when do I maybe not? Like how do, when when should a company bring that on? When is it like hey, maybe it's not the best time? Yeah, that's a good question too. Um so what I would say at least for here at Purple Cork, so we're about 5 years old. That was around the point of time where she really thought strategically of, hey, you know, who are my best fit customers? And who could I realistically bring on to really help me scale and get to that next growth mark? Um, so I would say that, you know, if you look online and you do a Google search for chief evangelists on LinkedIn today, you're going to see people like Canva. So they just brought on and they're around a similar time frame, too, of like, how old are they? Um, I think this is a really nice sweet spot for for early stage organizations around that five year mark. Definitely when you have a very good like uh, place in your category where you're familiar to your market and you can have you have a lot of really great best fit customers already, potentially that you would hire on to be full time and help you scale. So I think the the three to five year mark is probably a good range for companies to be considering something like that, which is very similar to Gong too. One more evangelism question. How do you measure the success of evangelism? How do you either prove ROI or just prove that, hey, we have a chief evangelist, all these activities are working? How do you do that? Yeah, it's super dependent on what, to your point, like what are those milestones? What are those metrics of success? What 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 is your whole intention of bringing on a chief evangelist designed to be? So from a brand awareness perspective, you certainly could be measuring, you know, traffic to your website, social engagement, um, how much has that gone up, pipeline. I mean, I can definitely tell you that from joining in um, the summer to now, we have definitely seen a bump in all of those metrics that would be indi indicators of initial success. So traffic, activity, engagement, pipeline, opportunities, um, those are all very solid metrics of success that you can track from, you know, you can get very granular with that, or you can just be very time specific with that as well. Um, but it's very dependent on what were your initial goals for bringing on an evangelist in the first place. You know, I saw the other day, it was actually a post of yours. And I, it might have been from a while ago, but you were talking about how retention has become the new acquisition. And to me, that makes a lot of sense with evangelism. But could you just go into what that means for everybody? Yeah, so we've seen a huge shift, especially for um, uh, SaaS organizations, where the last previous two years have been focused completely on net new, net new, net new, net new. And now that we've seen a massive decrease in um, venture capitalists actually funding these organizations, we've seen that there's been more of a, what I would call, um, more holistic and more cost-effective approach, which is actually focus on your current customer base and how do you protect that revenue um, for SaaS organizations, that can be protecting three plus years of revenue, right? Just based on the subscription model, things like that. Um, but because that decrease in funding has happened, so have all these 
demands from um, these venture-backed firms of like, these are, you know, the metrics of success. These are the number of clients we have. These are the logos we want, et cetera, et cetera. And instead focusing on who are our best fit customers and how can we work to retain them. Um, so I've definitely, I've been seeing that shift happen over the last year and a half. And I think in the past uh, quarter or so, it's been much more um, commonplace for people to start chatting about that and start being open about changing their metrics towards being more focused on acquisition. How does evangelism play into that? Um, again, like the strategy for for my founder was to bring on one of her best fit customers. So I was her second customer right behind Sixth Sense when she um, uh, founded her company in 2020. And I had carried her with her as part of my ABM programs for the last three roles. So it was very strategic and smart of her to see the value of a third party that was bringing in all this revenue for her without any kind of agreement um, in place and then bring me on to actually scale because she knew I understood the business, I understood the market, I understood how this um, would generate revenue, I understood her customer. Um, so I think that when you have the model of hiring your best fit customer to really amplify your message and your voice, um, evangelism certainly plays really well to help with those retention metrics. Yeah, and I think a lot of startups just don't focus on retention the way they should. And that's why you see so many layoffs. Obviously, there's the economy. Obviously, there's so many things. But most of the time, layoffs are because you lost a customer. Um, well, not most of the time, but many of the times. And the more we focus on... So I'm a believer... Of, I mean, I'm on the marketing side, but I dabble in everything, really. I'm a believer that the, the customer life cycle begins from day one. Too many people will be like, hey, 30 days are coming up. They're renewal. Let's reach out to them. Or too many people just only talk to two people at that company. And they love it, but like the decision makers don't know it. So, yeah, just retention in general, I think we're going to see a, a much bigger increase in those roles. Definitely. And I mean, we, we've been hearing about this as marketers, like our whole careers. But I think the reality is really hitting... Um, the sales organization a lot more this past year. G2 just reported that it's an average for any um, any B2B business right now for their an average amount of personas to be around nine. So if you think about people that have just been focusing solely on who was the person that they sold the deal to, that doesn't often translate to client success, like customer success. Mm -hmm. So to your point, there's so much opportunity for these organizations to be embedded a multi-persona, multi-touch approach. And I completely agree with you. In my mind, the customer journey starts long before they ever raise their hand. So you you need to be thinking about like this always on marketing presence. And then it doesn't stop once that deal gets signed, which most companies, even some of the best, even some of the best presences on LinkedIn, that's, that stops right when they sign the deal. Um, and so especially being an ABM marketer, it was such a such a hard pill for me to swallow when my metrics would solely be focused on net new. And then I would have all this journey, all this experience, I would get cut off for these customers the second they, they sign the, on the dotted line. Yeah, so this is this is a good segue into ABM. And again, account-based marketing, maybe start really the basics for those who just aren't in marketing. What would be your quick explanation of ABM and, and how it differs from standard marketing? 
Yeah. Um, you know, the the best way that I like to simplify what account-based marketing is, is it's a go-to-market strategy that makes it easier for buyers to buy and easier for sellers to sell. And I like to say both of that because it makes the alignment internally comes into play, right? So you're focused on, all right, it's not just marketing. Marketing is working hand-in-hand with sales and other revenue-generating functions within your organization. But then also that focus of making it easier for buyers to buy. So it's making it super buyer-centric, which is um, just so crucial to me in any kind of marketing. And it's really targeted and focused. So it's less of that spray and pray, try and catch anybody and everybody. It's forcing organizations that adopt this type of strategy to be hyper-focused on the who, the what, and the why. So just very foundational. Um, you know, it's not anything like groundbreaking, right? Like I'm of the belief that any organization of any size can deploy account-based marketing strategies because it's a strategy. It, and I really seek to dispel this in any conversation I have because it's not about reaching the enterprise level organization. You don't have to be selling enterprise. You don't have to be an enterprise organization to deploy this. You don't have to have a certain amount of budget to deploy this. It's really at the basis, just solid foundational strategy. A lot of it just comes down to intention. And you said spray and pray, but it, it not everybody's your customer. A lot of people have trouble with that, but yes. and then once you actually once you actually have that, you have your ICP criteria criteria, you have an idea, but even those people aren't all the right people because they might not have the role that you sell to, they might not have intent in buying it, they might not be funding. Too many people will just go out and be like, "Hey, we're targeting SaaS companies. Uh, let's go market." Um, and, you know, right. some companies are that wide, but usually, usually not. Yeah. And I mean, it doesn't allow for a lot of hyper personalization, right? So when you have such a wide net to cast like that, it's hard to then really be attuned with your buyer beyond maybe that seller to buyer relationship. And account-based marketing is really meant to cover so much of the revenue sphere. So marketers should be really in tune with the account the people that make up that account, and be able to adjust their messaging and their tactics to fit that account. And you can't do that when you're serving everybody, right? So there is a difference between account-based marketing and general demand generation. But I do think we make it a little bit more complicated than we need to. Yeah, I think a lot of people just use that interchangeably, like demand generation manager, like the first thing you see is like ABM in the role. Mm. Um, mm-hmm, right. one, <laughs> one, yeah. one really important thing you said is the strategy. And for too many people, ABM is tech stack and ads and this. And tools like Sixth Sense, Demand Base are amazing, but they should never be the very first. You shouldn't just dive in and buy a tool like that. Oh. Where would you say is the very basics of, of starting ABM? Yeah, you kind of touched on it earlier, which is understanding who your audience is, why you're going after them, and what is your unique value prop for them. So you're totally right. Tech is totally secondary to what is your strategy? Who are you targeting? Why are you targeting them? And what is your messaging for that audience? Um, when you think about what is your tools tech stack first, you're actually at a huge disadvantage because I've seen too many people sign these very large, you know, deals with these vendors. And by the way, almost every vendor and their mother says that they do ABM. So that gets convoluted in itself. But if you go with an ABM platform like the ones you mentioned, they're designed typically for specific 
specific purpose. So the bulk of them are designed to push a message. So they're designed to do display advertising or do LinkedIn advertising or what have you. That's that's the tool's main goal, which doesn't help to formulate a strategy about who to target, with what, and why. So if you don't have that ready to go, you're essentially just pushing a message out without the foundations of what's going to work with that audience and why. Um, so yeah, you have to remember that these tools, like what are they at the, what are they at the end of the day and forget their marketing message. What are they at the end of the day? What were they built to do? And most of these tools, over 80% of these tools were built to just do advertising. So it's not built to really help you refine who your ICP right. is. That's part of it, but that's the secondary benefit of the tool. Yeah. You I have mean, to when, inform the tool. Yeah, exactly. So like when you're when when you're just marketing to and let's just say Google, for example, when you're marketing to Google, you're not marketing to Google, you're marketing to several layers of decision makers on that account and then they have their own their own thing there. But like you you don't need those tools. It doesn't mean advertising. To me, you need a CRM to keep track of everybody, tag the decision makers. You need your analytics tools, ideally some kind of intent or at least this company visited my website. Yeah, those are those are some of the basics. Which so often, I was just chatting with somebody today, advising them, and they were unaware of all the intent data they could get just from their website traffic. So first-party mm -hmm. intent data, what are people doing on your website? What are they doing inside your solution? What are they doing, um, you know, if you had a freemium uh, PLG product-led growth model. What are they doing on your social networking platforms? There's so much you can do just with first-party intent data. Never mind third-party intent data, which is going to be like, what are they doing on G2? What are they doing across the web? Um, so yeah, I feel like people should take stock of what they're already using to measure um, success, engagement, et cetera, um, and blend that into their account-based marketing metrics. Um, but yeah, you don't. There's a lot of stuff you can do just right now that you don't have to source. The other thing with these these big ABM tools, and again, I love them, but like intent data, like there's some basic <laughs> things like you're saying, just website traffic. Now it's like you can find out like this person had like a sausage for breakfast or something in these in, like intent tools. <laughs> like there's so many actions and it's easy to get just overwhelmed and just end up not using it. Um, start totally. with the very basic of intent. Yeah, I mean, that's such a good point. I, I'm, an, um, I'm an advisor for some tech companies, and they'll talk to me about, like, building out these new intent models. And I'll tell them, like, I'll, I got to be honest with you, this is too much to consume. Like, not only is, are you throwing out so much data at once to marketers, Think about all the sellers that are going to have to eventually look and understand that data. Like, they're mm -hmm. just not going to, especially if they have to log into a separate system, then make sense of the UI of that system, then try to understand what does that data layer mean? Like, then they need to understand, like, then what do I do with that? What is the action I take off of that intent signal? So to summarize what you're saying, sorry, I get super passionate about this. To no, we love ABM. Saying, we just get, yeah. <laughs> like, there's just... Figure out about like the three to four metrics or signals that matter most to you and start from there. The rest mm -hmm. is actually kind of noise. And so maybe it's fancy and cool and, you know, revolutionary, but is it really going to help you move the needle in your business? Probably not. Yeah. And like literally, if you don't know where to start, has this person been on the website? How long have they been on the website? What pages have they been? Have they been to the pricing page if you have one? 
Um, like that's just where to start, and then do all the other offsite buyer type data. Yep, a hundred percent. One other thing that us ABMers like to talk about is the the painted door test, and I know you're a big believer in in that. Can you just can you just tell people what that is? Yes, I love that it, this has a name. So essentially, it's like. A-B testing, but we've branded it, of course, as marketers and put a little fun twist on it by calling it the painted door test. Um, So what I've done is a lot of when I've come into any organization, I've been asked to launch or scale an ABM strategy. Um, I use it kind of as a test. So uh, one of the organizations I worked at was hoping to target an entirely new industry and vertical and audience. And they spent thousands on research about why this would be the best um, market for us to try and tap. And so we spun up a bunch of marketing collateral and messaging. We worked with thought leaders to make sure that we were hitting the mark for this new audience. Uh, But I knew that in order to really paint the picture of how we were going to solve this uh, persona's problems, we would have to create an environment that didn't exist in our product to really illustrate the art of the possible, what we could do with our data challenges. And rather than going to product and spinning up their time, investing all this money uh, to actually develop the product to be that, we actually just created a dummy test environment and did a live webinar where people could join and we would walk through and give them visuals of what we could do. And it was so helpful because what we came away and found out was we were not hitting the mark. And there were many regulations within this Mm -hmm. industry that our product would take years and years and years to catch up to, to even be on their approved like radar for vendors to push their data into. Um, So it was very helpful from that perspective. And the painted door test is meant to do just that. It's meant to illustrate um, the art of the possible. So you could even do this with like a website. So testing out what a new homepage looks like with all these new graphics um, and new messaging for specific Adding a wait set of list audience. or coming soon and seeing how many people click it or join yep. it. Exactly. Hmm. So it's this whole idea of like A-B testing with this nice fancy name on it. But you could apply that in so many different ways to really test your positioning um, and, and test before you actually go to market with a new offering as an example. And then we have the like close the door test, I think it's called, which I don't love because it's the opposite. I mean, I, I love it. Like, I don't love it because c- close is not the opposite of painted. Um, so right. we got to rename that better. But like closing <laughs> the door test is kind of like the opposite where like you take something away and mm. then you see how people react. Yeah, that one I have not deployed as much. I certainly have deployed it from the perspective of like teasing And when I ask people, like, so when I do customer interviews, one of my favorite open-ended questions to ask, which kind of teeters on this closed-door testing thing, is, you know, what would you do if our product didn't exist tomorrow? And so same kind of thing, right? Closing down or in this case, I'm just giving the idea of like, hey, if we didn't exist – How would you actually try and go about solving the problem that our tool is solving for you today? And it's what I like about that question is it's doing just that, right? It's gauging whether or not there is a pain that we're still solving for, but it's doing it in a way that's less kind of evasive and disruptive, but also gets them to think in a much more open-ended way, right? Like I'm not saying like, you know, um, 
if you didn't renew with us, who would you go to? I'm saying if we didn't exist tomorrow, what would you do? It's completely open-ended and you get so many really unique, insightful uh, responses with a question like that. Yeah, so I do want to spend some time talking about Purple Cork. One, because I absolutely love the brand name. Um, but <laughs> two, it's it's a unique offering. So could you just tell our viewers a bit about Purple Cork if they haven't heard of it? Sure. So Purple Cork, I love the name too. It's the idea of if you take, um, you know, if you open your bottle of wine, you pull the cork out, you'll see that it's actually got a purple marking, particularly if you've gotten like a red wine. So super cute, very on brand with what we do. Um, and what we do is we offer virtual events. That's our bread and butter. From day one, we offered really unique uh, virtual events. So we have partnered with vineyards and distilleries from around the world um, that are very exclusive. So meaning you would have to be like on a wait list to get into their wine club, as an example, or just that they only cap their shipments at a summer, uh, certain amount uh, per year. So it would be impossible unless you already had an in with the, the vineyard to get in. And we bring them on um, and create a virtual event program for um, some incredible brands to to make networking just so much more accessible and easier for people. So we definitely have seen that, of course, everybody's so excited to do these in-person events again. But what we found is that people have really adjusted and gotten comfortable with the inclusivity that virtual events offer. So you are not really disruptive to your day-to-day. We're not, you know, you don't have to be going to a conference to then go to this cocktail party. You can drop in um, wherever you're at and experience the brand and then Purple Cork as well. So we, what I like to say too is that we aim to be the icing, not the cake. So the cake is the brand, the brand and all of their thought leadership, everything they want to offer. And we're just the icing, right? We're there to make it seamless from a tech perspective. We're there to make it unique from who we partner with uh, from a vendor perspective. And we're there to make it super relevant uh, to your audience. So my founder is a former CMO. I've been in marketing my whole career. We know how to do these like the back of our hands. So we have that expertise that we're able to lay on with our clients. So that in a nutshell is Purple Cork. That's so cool. And I mean, I also... I also love it. It's just like you're not just doing like another webinar or or just like thing like like that where it's kind of stale. Like you've said, like everyone's kind of done it by now. Um, mm-hmm. It's it's a bit different. Like yes, you're getting wine and like that's fun, but there's there's just a bit more interaction to it. Could you speak to that? Yeah. I'm, so again, because we're marketers, uh, we're we're very like in in we're very in tune with what would make an event super relevant. And so we like to like webinars were that we in our brand dictionary, like that's one of those do not use words. We do not use webinar to describe our offering for that exact reason, because we don't want everything that's attached to that word. We don't want to be viewed that way. And so for us, an event should be something that you attend. Like if you missed it, then you missed the event, right? So that is like the the ultimate um the ultimate part of the campaign. But there's all these other aspects before the campaign. There's the pre-event, during the event, and then post-event. So what we do is we strategize and work with our clients to figure out how do we build up excitement before the event? How do we garner interest? How do we make this um, something that people want to commit to and come to? How do we get information to make it super hyper-relevant before the event? And then same with post-event. How do we continue to make the life of the event stretch 
long after that event even happened. So um, it's a holistic approach to how people should be looking at treating events. And we we make it really like a fully integrated campaign into what they're doing with their with our marketing campaigns. Nice. So you're coming like like the partner for them, not just like, hey, we're, we're running this in the background. That That's awesome. I love our customers so much. And that's why I feel like it, it suited me so well to join Ventures with Kelly here is because we are a completely customer-centric company. And the words that our clients like just openly all say, I mean, ever since I started here, is they just all, all freely say to us, like, you're so easy to work with. Like, it's such a joy to work with you. And I'm like, easy. Like, what a what a gift to hear as any vendor in any space that you're easy to work with. It just I just had a little moment where I thought on that and it made me made me smile because that's that's our whole goal is to just be super easy to work with. Yeah, I, that that's key too. Like so many products are amazing or services, but like they're just not easy to work with. Moving on, we are going to go into our segment Spill the Tea with Lee. That's right. <laughs> this is the fastest podcast for B2B and things are going to get juicy. So I'm excited. Yeah, we t- yeah, this is the, this is the the fun part. I mean, everything's fun, but we <laughs> talked we talked a bit about this. Um, we're moving into virtual events. Yes, we still have in person, and they're coming back, which is great. Um, but there are so many virtual events. That's really where things are moving. How do you prevent Zoom fatigue on on these events? Because mm. so many people are just like, it's another Zoom call. Like I'm bored. Maybe I'll turn my camera off, or like I won't really engage. Like, how do you deal with Zoom fatigue? Yeah, definitely. So we really aim to not have any of our offerings go stale. But something that I also want to touch on that's been very exciting, especially for our cybersecurity audience is how we've actually been able to prevent people from just registering to maybe receive the exclusive gift, right? So we will have them register to receive the gift, but we'll actually send them a locked case. So it's going to contain the gift inside, but you can't open it until you get the code. And so you get the code by coming on. And we have clients that do like virtual scavenger hunts. We have clients that are already aware of like how to solve the puzzle maybe beforehand. And then they get to share their answer to the puzzle and how they solved it on the event. And then they can share that to win another prize. So there's a lot of ways to think about engaging your audience so you're not just sitting and looking at a talking head for 20 plus minutes. I mean, that is my number one tip for any of my clients um, and just anybody, period, is if you're just staring at a talking head for even like more than two minutes, your mind already wants to divert its attention elsewhere. So we aim to always like educate our clients that like maybe your CEO does want to come on and do a 20 minute presentation this is not the place for it, right? Like that's a separate Zoom meeting. And I want you to associate that with a meeting. The goal is not to look at this event like a Zoom meeting. The goal is to look at it like something very cool, exciting, fun, the same way you would want in person too, right? We want to bring that virtually too. So there's so much educating that we have to do. And we do have to help our our clients, like enable them to feel like empowered to go to their CEO and say like, no, we're not doing that. This isn't a timeshare presentation. This is a this is a community event, people. We're trying to get some things moving. <laughs> right, right. Yeah. So it's spilled the tea with Lee, but wine is obviously what, what the main thing is there, not tea. So I wanted <laughs> to do some wine-themed questions for you. Okay. If you were to describe your career in B2B marketing, 
using the notes of a wine, meaning like oaky, <laughs> earthy, bold, something else. What would you say? Like, I would probably say fruity for me. Um, I can say uh-huh. that, but I don't know. I don't know. What would you, <laughs> what would you say? Oh, okay. So definitely spicy. I think we can have some notes that are spicy. My career has certainly been full of spicy moments. Um, I would say, hmm, this is a good question. I've never been asked this, and I think I'm going to steal this question too. Yeah, so spicy. Um, I think bold is a really great word. Um, Maybe citrusy, because I think there's Mm -hmm. been like a little bit of tartness too. Um, what could I use to describe? And definitely not oaky, because I feel like that's a really common one. Um, mm-hmm. and I don't feel like my path has been super common. So I don't know what the opposite of oaky would be. Maybe velvety or Ooh, okay. Yeah, I like yeah. velvety. Yeah. You're better velvety. at this than me. Yeah, that was good. Well, I, I also knew the question was coming up, but like velvety <laughs> I just thought of now. So what what else would you add for you? So fruity. What else would we say? Yeah, I, I would add fruity, maybe. Like, definitely on bold, obviously. Um, definitely. I would say bitter. Definitely. So- I don't mm. know if it be fruity and bitter at the same time, but, like, <laughs> but yeah. maybe it's the aftertaste. Maybe it's the aftertaste. <laughs> I'd add some bitter yeah. into there. Um, uh-huh. Yeah, yeah. I got maybe lush. Yeah. Is, that, is that something Ooh. people say for, for wine? I don't know. I've been told, so... There's this be- this really hilarious, very sarcastic documentary on HBO. It's called How To with John Wilson. And I cannot watch it all the yes. time because it depresses it. Do you know what I'm talking about? Oh, yeah, my yeah. God. He depresses me, but, like, also makes me, like, laugh. But I have to be in a very specific mood to watch it. But he did a whole episode on, like, wine connoisseurs. And literally, I mean, this is not to take away because I have – we do have incredible wines. And I can definitely tell the difference when I'm drinking something that one of our vendors has versus something I can just go buy in the store. And sadly, there's a huge difference. But they have said that it's really kind of all bullshit, if I can say that. Ooh, <laughs> that's some juicy stuff. Yeah, it's pretty much bullshit because they're literally they've said they're like, we basically just say, what do you what do you taste? What are you pulling out? And anything the customer says, I'll just be like, yeah, totally. I can get that, too. So (laughs) it's super subjective. And really, the whole sommelier thing is this is a spicy, spicy opinion. But what others have said is that the whole sommelier thing is kind of. Well, a lot of times, too, because I I totally agree. I'm not the biggest wino. Um. My uh-huh. boyfriend and his family, they are, like, I w- entered this relationship knowing nothing about wine, and now I'm like, I like French whites only. Um, <laughs> but, I love it. But, but, yeah, I mean, I think, I think a big part with expensive wine versus cheap is the sulfurs in them. Like, a lot yes. of times, like, you know when you get headaches and it's just cheap wine and sugar and sulfurs? Like that, that's part of it. Yeah, I'm totally with you, and that has so much to do with, like, yeah, how they process it, how they're treating it, Yeah. Yeah, definitely. I, I, um, my uh, founder is like a champagne fanatic, and I used to hate champagne literally until like a couple months ago. I hated champagne, never wanted it. And then she spoiled the crap out of me, and I can never drink champagne the same again because I don't have that kind of budget. <laughs> yeah. But, well, I like um, Prosecco. Prosecco is my go to. See, I can't do that because it typically like gives me the heartburn. Mm, interesting. Yeah. Do you like but rose, though? I do, but that gives me heartburn too. But I prefer oh. it over Prosecco. I like rosé Prosecco. It's a combo. Same. Yes, yeah. Yeah, the bubbly uh, rosé, yeah. But yeah. yeah, it's crazy that there are some wines out there that cannot give you any of that. And it's just based on that tier. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. 
So the next wine question I have for you. So wine is all about matchmaking. Um, Mm. First of all, if you don't know this, like red wine typically doesn't go with fish. Um, So like that's a bad pairing if you do that. But red wine (laughs) and fish typically don't go together. What is a a pairing in B2B that should Mm -hmm. not go together? Ooh. Okay, let me think about this because I want to answer Take this well. Take your time. Well. Take your time. I'm sure I can have something good to say about this. Oh God. Um, okay, I got it. <laughs> Hot takes and B2B are not going well together. And I say that because anybody that says they have a hot take, it's not a hot take. It's a very popular common opinion that you're trying to label as a hot take. So currently, mm-hmm. hot takes and B2B just don't exist. They could. They definitely could. Um, but they don't currently. It's kind of like when somebody asks, like, am I the only one? And it's like, literally everybody does that. Like, you just want attention. <laughs> Exactly. It's a very clear tactic. It's very clear templatized. And then I try, I try and read these to see like, maybe this person does have an actual hot take and they don't. I would also add maybe like ABM and immediate revenue. Oh, (laughs) that's a better one. Go together. No, no, I liked yours. Um, Yeah, I I just, I mean, you can say about anything though, ABM, partnerships, like Mm -hmm. those are investments and they pay off. But like, the reason they fail is not because they, f- well, I mean, sometimes they fail, but the reason they fail is because you gave it a month or two. Um, you know, yeah. you know what, like going on that same thread, it's almost like you could even say that a, a company that's like, uh, runs off a sales model is not going to be buyer centric. And I actually really do stand by that. If you are, if your primary way of doing business and generating revenue is from like a purely sales based model, I don't think you can say that you're buyer centric. I don't think you can say that you're really like, pushing out programs and making it super easy for your buyers to buy because that model is just it's not really adjustable to be easy for multitudes of people to buy so i don't know that's that's probably a little bit more of a hot take Uh, yeah no i i agree everybody talks like our product's the best thing ever um it's not about your needs it's it's that's not buyer centric. The other thing too is customer centric is again, talking about retention, people are so focused on acquisition. They're not actually listening to their customers who know what other customers will want. Um, yeah. So, yeah. Yeah. I, I mean, what surprises me too about being in marketing is every organization I've entered, the way they view case studies is very simply like, okay, they've been in business with us for three plus years. Now let's reach out to them and engage with them and figure out how they're lo- using our solution. It's like, no, we should have already been in communication with them. This should yes. not be this new relationship. Like they should already know who marketing is. Um, so yeah, I think that's just it's it should a, be part of the contract too that case studies can be done in some well, capacity. Yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah. Even just speaking with the client, like I've, I every organization I've walked into, it's so rare that marketers are actually talking to the customers, and that's what we need yeah. to be doing more than anything. And so, uh, some companies just don't want them to, and I don't get why. Mm-hmm. There's a huge gate. There's a huge, like, yeah, you have to go through like, the sales rep to get to the customer. Yeah. Gong calls are great to listen to, but, like, sometimes yeah. I want to just talk to the, the person because I'm not selling to them. I'm literally just, I, I want to know what they like, what they don't like. Yeah. What a great way to create stickiness, too, right? Like, maybe mm-hmm. they're going to end up one day hating the sales rep. Maybe one day that person's going to leave and somebody else is going to enter and not like the sales rep. So having this, like, 
multitude of people at, at an organization that you can talk to and, and finance and, you know, the executive suite and sales and marketing and customer success. Like, that's just good for business. I have been in situations, too, where it's been like, yeah, we don't really want to talk to them or ask them for a case study. So I'll, I'll be like, all right, so here's where we start, though. Let's ask them to be in our blog post or let's put them on a list of top people. Um, Baby and then the yeah, and then the person yeah. says, oh, absolutely, I'd love to talk to you guys. And then, <laughs> right. yeah. Right. Just got to yeah. ask. It, it, it shouldn't be first time you're talking with marketing equals case study. That's just stupid. A new wine question for you. So okay. wine's an acquired taste to many people. Mm. I don't know if, if you immediately liked wine, but wine's considered to be an acquired taste. Okay. Um, yes, Lee. <laughs> what, what's, something, what's something in B2B that you think is Ooh. an acquired taste. It could be something that like you didn't like at first and the, you do love now, or it could be something more like it was rough in the beginning and now it's it's smooth and silky like a, a glass of wine. Actually, wine's not silky, but that works. I think it can't be. Like, again, it can be anything. Um, I think that sales enablement is a bit of an acquired taste. I feel like most people are turned off by it because it takes a lot of work. It takes a lot of, it's also not sexy. Like there's not a lot of sexy metrics that people are talking about with sales enablement. Um, you can correlate it to revenue, but it's not the first thing, right? Like again, like we talked about with ABM, like that's going to take time to correlate it to revenue. Um, and I just don't think many people are doing it well. Even the, even the tools that like that's the space they play in. I don't think they're doing sales enablement from a content perspective well, let alone like how easy their tool makes it to, to enable uh, their seller. So I feel like that's a super acquired taste that if we have the right people getting involved in that, like it could be a real game changer, especially from a thought leadership perspective. Yeah, I think with enablement too, it's like, it's literally supposed to be, it's exactly what it sounds like. It's supposed to be enabling your, your sales team, enabling your people. Sales enablement though, software, tools, products are sold to the sales decision makers who have necessarily, I mean, yes, they want to enable their people, but they have quotas. They care more about different metrics. So that tends to be a problem, especially if you don't have a dedicated sales enablement person and maybe just a sales development manager or ops or a different yeah. function. Well, I mean, Lee, even think about it. Like, what is a, a like, you don't have to name the brand, but is there any brand that anybody's ever come to you and be like, oh, my God, like that was a game changer for, for enablement? I mean, HubSpot. Right? HubSpot just does everything well, awesome. So there you go. So we actually had somebody on my podcast direct who does enablement at HubSpot. But again, they're not very like the tool is not the enablement. It's how they like are educating the market, like HubSpot Academy, all yes. that. So I love that you said that. That's the thought leadership aspect of it. And they're not a sales enablement platform, but they are enabling sellers and marketers, et cetera. So I, I had a, an episode with with Kyle Jepson from HubSpot Academy. The other oh, cool. evangelist I know that's not religious based, he is their <laughs> principal. He's their principal marketing evangelist, and yeah, he he was really saying the same thing. How one of the main differences there is HubSpot, like other, unlike other companies, really put in all that sources to enable people have content educational. Some of it's not even about HubSpot, um, and that exactly. that kind of launched everything. Yeah, it's so impressive. It's such a it's such a template that people can look to for inspiration to follow. Yeah, I love that you said that. And I think that like you're not alone there. But again, too, that's not their they're often not selling HubSpot when they do that. But yeah, that's a very customer-centric company for sure. 
All right, that was the last of my my wine questions, but okay. another another little segment. Well, it's still part of Spill the Tea with Lee because that's my only segment right now. Um, <laughs> but the the other. So I'm a big fan of your. You have a series called like Fill in the Blank. I mean, you don't call it that, but that's what I call it when I see it. Where you ask yeah. people questions like Fill in the Blank for me. Um, mm-hmm. I there was one today. I, I forget exactly what you asked. Where it was like, you know, you're a marketer when you have um blank i think it was yeah you're not doing marketing if you're not doing blank yeah 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 and And my my answer was newsletter what uh, would your answer answer was my i commented i said having a mental illness yeah (laughs) (laughs) totally fair (laughs) which we could actually apply to like so many things i mean Mm -hmm. what would be your next you're not in blank if you don't have a mental illness i would say congress (laughs) <laughs> yeah well yeah i think yeah that's true well say i was talking to somebody else sam um sam hitch on my podcast and she uh-huh. has she's a stand-up comedian as well and she has this great Ooh. joke about, about as, wait, wait, as well and, oh you mean uh, yeah. like oh, in she, addition to being a marketer <laughs> i thought you meant like yeah so you you or no, i so, were also comedians <laughs> oh well no i mean we could be no but so sam hitch is an ae as well as a stand-up comedian got it got it, got it. um and she was talking a lot about how, like, salespeople are typically on Adderall. Um, and I'm like, yeah, and the marketers are all on antidepressants. And that's just how yeah. it works. It's, we balance um, each other out. <laughs> yeah. Or we talk, all right, fill in the blank. Yeah. So yeah. fill in the blank series. So I'm going to flip it. I'm going to turn the tables on you and ask you to fill in the blank. Okay. You ready? I'm ready. Right, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to start with an easier one. Uh, and then we're going to oh, get God. more sassy. Okay. My secret recipe for a successful LinkedIn post includes blank. A wink emoji. Nice. I have been trying to crack the code on what makes a success- successful post. Um, people say they know it. Like, I don't, I don't know, man. Like, well, it's just, it's, it's yeah, it did. There's no, like, as, as frequently as they're evolving with their algorithm, there's no, nothing to say. But what I can say is that. I would attempt to just be like, I mean, this sounds like blah, like I would attempt to be human though, like my fill in the blank stuff, mm-hmm. right? Like that's, that's designed to like engage and like interact. It's not like it's so fine. like hoity toity, like I know everything, 10 tips or like this is the way, this is the playbook. Like I try and offer value, but I also try to not have that be like the only thing because that's sure as hell not who I am as a person. So yeah. 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 Plus not it's that, authentic there's, there's, and it's. Yes. As authentic as you can be, be that, but that's not, that doesn't mean that that's going to be like a recipe for a, a thousand followers. That recipe doesn't really exist, in my opinion. Yeah. Like, it's kind of like if you, you can't just copy what you see somebody else doing. It's kind of like going to the gym. If you just go and copy what somebody else is doing, you're just going to be <laughs> doing different moves every day. Like, you're not going to make progress on anything. Um, yeah. Like, yes. Yes. Take note of what other people are doing. Use it for your your own stuff. But it's about finding your your routine, your workout routine, or your voice. Right. Totally. Yeah. You know, I, I made that's such a masculine reference. I can't believe I made that analogy. <laughs> it wasn't it, it wasn't sports though, so that still works. That's, that's um, still better. Yeah. <laughs> I did so, picture really so, like uh, ridiculous men in the gym though when you said that. So that's interesting. <laughs> oh, like we could do like the like the Richard Simmons. Is that his name? Yeah, outfit, yeah, yeah. Like the, yeah, we could do like that type of outfit. Yeah, okay. <laughs> That's not what I wear to the gym, people. Um, I wear regular clothes. I don't own a leotard. Uh, <laughs> so, Karina, the next question for you, and this one's a bit spicier. The biggest misconception about ABM is blank. 
Uh, I don't feel like my answer will be so spicy, but it is accurate for what I'm seeing. Um, is that you need to be selling to enterprise to do it? Mm-hmm. That's what I, I was. Know... That's my answer. So. Oh, cool. Yeah, I mean, I don't know why. Like that perception even exists. It literally never existed for me when I was getting into ABM. I never like went with that preconceived notion. Why but do you this... think that is? Like, why do you think? Is it just? I do you think, think it's, it's about resources or? I think it's about people evaluating that in conjunction with evaluating tech. So being ready to do ABM means you're ready to buy this tech bucket. And I think like whether they realize they're doing that or not, I feel like they're just automatically when they hear that word, they're thinking of like, what is the technology I need? And so the Mm -hmm. technology that you would need typically means you're going to need to have a bigger budget, which typically lends to selling to the enterprise audience. So, um, and then I think, too, they just think, like, that's how you attract big logos. But you can be attracting somebody in Google that doesn't, like, that they're, you know, they have this very small budget. They don't affect the corporate budget. Like, so it doesn't mean that either. So I, I don't know. That would be my guess. But it's either, like, that they're thinking of, like, it means attracting big logos. Um, yeah. And then all the resources you would need with that. Or they're thinking, like, without them even knowing that they're lumping it into like tech evaluation. We said it before that like a lot of people think it's like ads and tools mm-hmm. and expenses that right. only enterprise companies can afford or hey, like only enterprise companies have multiple decision makers and that's bullshit too. Right. Obviously, ABM yeah. isn't for every company at every moment, but it's definitely have, not yeah. just for enterprise. No. Yeah. And ABM should look different at every company. By its own, by mm-hmm. the very nature of it, yeah. By the definition, almost, yeah. yeah. <laughs> exactly. All right, this one, and again, I'm gonna say spicier again, but this one is, I think, my favorite. I have it is, men in sales should blank more. <laughs> okay, um, that you can obviously tell where my head's probably going. Mm-hmm. I want to say take your time, different. Karina. There's a lot of problems with men. <laughs> Yeah, I have to filter through. Let's see. Uh, okay, well, I mean, I, I may not get a lot of friends for this, but I think that they should um, actively be finding ways to make room and spaces for others. When you see that you're in a crowded space, when there's a lot of people that look, act, and think like you, you are in a place where you can make space for others, and that should be a focus, not an afterthought. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. The other thing is... It's not just up to, to women or gay men to speak up. Um, no. It's not just about liking other people's posts. It's like you can you can do the same thing. You can be an ally. Yeah, and I think it's the intentionality behind it, right? Like thinking that you just – you shouldn't have a space to speak or learn or listen. Like that's just such a, 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 a limiting way to think, right? Like you should actively want to – make room for others to take up space with you. And maybe that means you're uncomfortable and maybe that means you're vulnerable and you ask a lot of questions, but that's a great thing. That's a great thing to be a person that does that. Yeah. One more fill in the blank for me. Uh, Okay. What is, or I guess, hmm, you kind of mentioned one of the the buzzwords before that you kind of cringe on, but I roll my eyes whenever I see blank being used as a buzzword oh my god i have a whole like kill acronyms and jargon um oh (laughs) um i don't know if this is a buzzword but it literally oh my god just made my like skin crawl 
whenever I would hear people say, and this was happening for years, for the past two and a half years, whenever I would hear anybody say out loud, let alone write it, um, double click. Let's double click on that. <laughs> it would mean? just drive me. You, you haven't heard this? No. So, so the idea is double click is like, this isn't even how mouses work anymore, but you would maybe double click to like expand oh, yeah, no, I, a window. I, I thought you meant that was like some other term. I never double click never bothered me. Do you not double click anymore? Is that why it bothers you? I just think it's moronic. <laughs> just... <laughs> Maybe that's a little harsh, but we are in the sassy segment. Like, do you do you really yeah, need I mean, to say this is what like, we want. So let's double click on that. And then also the um T TLDR. People would literally say, uh, uh, the TLDR of this is. I'm like, we are literally speaking out loud. Like we why are we why are we talking like this? I don't know. I, I'm a millennial, I'm not a zennial. Maybe this is cooler for that audience, but it's I mean, I'm saying I'm a millennial. Yeah, yeah, I don't know. It drives me nuts. Like I try to be cool, I try to be hip, but Ugh. Yeah. I so don't know. As a <laughs> as a paid media guy, I never understand why we say paid ads. Oh. Aren't what all would you ads say? inherently yeah. like paid? Like just I would just say yeah. advertisements. I would say digital ads, outdoor ads. Can an ad That's by a, definition not be paid? That's a really interesting take. I've never heard that. You're right. I mean it's advertising. Maybe is I'm the idiot. Of, like, maybe there is. No. Like, maybe like, it's because of PPC, pay per click. I don't know. That became a really yeah, big thing. So maybe yeah, but that, that like, makes sense because you're you're paying per click. You're paying click. by keyword. Like that makes right, sense. Right. That's more specific. Yeah. Just saying paid ad. Yeah, you're right. I mean, even in budget line items, it's paid advertising. And they never mean TV commercials, though. It's like it's they mean no, like social advertisement or, or digital or. You're right. You know. That would be a separate line item if you did TV. Um, or audio, which is interesting. I, I see. I would always say paid media. Like I run the paid media team, and then like people say, right. "Oh, leave the paid ads." And I'm like, "Yes," because everyone says paid ads, but but paid media. <laughs> yeah. So to end on maybe a less saster note, but an important one. Um, this is really important, and I I wanted to to bring it up because I was reading a blog from our mutual friend Kelly at Quotapath the other day about negotiations specifically about women in sales. And then I saw you actually happen to be the first one quoted. So you mentioned that one of the, the big underrated negotiation tactics for people is just establishing key milestones and then dates to support your pre professional development. I yes. think for so many people, by the time they're like getting a job or interviewing, they're just like so happy or they're just trying to, to say the right things. What would you say to people who, who just need some help there? I would say that I totally understand the the thought process there of not wanting to jeopardize or look too, quote unquote, greedy. I mean, throw that out the freaking window. And like, this just makes you look strategic. This is you kind of doing your uh, direct uh, hire's job for them. Um, most organizations don't have formal review plans and structures put in place, a lot of them are just like kind of winging it. Um, so what I would say is you're showing your professionalism and your commitment to being in the long haul by actually establishing some uh, guidelines for that. Um, it shows that you're somebody that's really invested in your own growth in addition to the company's growth. 
And you can further support that and make it feel like it's less about you by saying like, hey, I noticed that the company is hoping to do their next fundraising um, by X amount of date. You know, I want to make sure that I'm aligned as a professional to support those goals. So after we reach that benchmark, can we then reevaluate and maybe talk about what my next steps look like from there? So it just shows that you're you're kind of ahead of the game when you're when you're planning that far ahead. Um, and I would encourage people to be like ballsy about it because most mm-hmm. candidates are just waiting, um, because they're, 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 we've given this stupid mindset that we should just be so grateful for anybody wanting to offer us a job. And yeah, we, we don't need to be like, we don't need to think that lowly of ourselves. Like that's very intentional that, um, the job market wants us to feel that way because they want to remain in power. They want to remain, they want people to feel like they're, you're indebted to them in servitude to them. And you're not, you should be in like indebted to yourself. So just flip that whole notion on its freaking head and be ballsy. Trust me. They would much rather a ballsy individual at their corporation than a meek individual at their corporation, despite what, um, you know, what you may think. So go for it. Yeah. And I'd add too, if, if, if you're in the part where you've gotten an offer, that means they like you. That means you're, you're good at what you do. That means you're valued. If, if you think that there should be something different, there needs to be more information, or like you said, you just want to have some clarity around milestones, s- speak up. They want you. You're, you're awesome. Yeah. I mean, even them reaching out, I would go a step further and say, if they reached out to you, they want you. Um, so before an offer is even made, I'm of the mindset that if they're reaching out to you in particular, you should always be negotiating from day from step one. Well, Karina, I know you're all over the place. Uh, where can where can people find you? I know you have direct the podcast. Um, tell us about that. Yeah, so Direct is a podcast where we highlight uh, individual contributors that are really making the magic happen at many of the go to marketing organizations that you you know and are familiar with, and we just dissect these campaigns um, and just aim to create like a spotlight on some unheard voices uh, because it can get pretty old uh, hearing the same viewpoint over and over again. So that's direct. I co-host that with Taylor Young. Um, We would love to feature your story on our show. Uh, You can also find me on LinkedIn. I am posting as frequently as my mental capacity can handle, (laughs) but I'm always Mm -hmm. there to chat, uh, as Lee knows, offline and in direct messages and always happy to connect. Yeah, definitely, definitely follow, definitely tune into the podcast. And again, I'm going to say it again, direct, because it is informational, especially if you love hearing some of the nitty gritty about what goes on. Uh, So definitely tune into that after you listen to mine, of course. (laughs) Of course. Well, thank you so, so much. This was such a fun conversation. Thank you, everybody, for listening. I will see you next time on Lee2B.